0: Tuesday this week, on the west side of Chicago, 83rd and 4th graders from the Polaris Charter Academy gathered in the school gymnasium before heading out on a camping trip. This school does a lot of field trips, but this is the one the kids talk about all year.
1: Anybody excited for this overnight?
0: That's teacher Jenny Syme.
1: We're going to spend a couple minutes in here just going over some final things, making sure that we are absolutely 100% ready to be successful on this trip. So first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to need a couple of actors to
2: help us out.
0: SignPix volunteers to act out what to do, and perhaps more important, what not to do in six different scenarios they are likely to encounter on this trip. Like, for example, what to do when you see a bug, what to do when you have to go to the bathroom, what to do when your things are heavy while you are carrying them to your campsite, and this one, what to do when somebody is upset. This one was acted out by Joseph and Jari.
2: Okay,
3: start scene. Are you okay? Are you, yeah. okay? Are you yeah. okay? Are you okay? okay? Yeah. I'm fine. You, Why are you saying it? I had issues today. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay for issues to happen. That happens to me, too. Okay.
0: <laughs> Take that, Neil Patrick Harris and the Tony telecast. The trip was a resounding success, despite early fears of bears, bugs, and issues. You know, every week on our program here, we try to find something different to document about the world. And this week, we are documenting the week, the one that we just all had. This is really, I have to say, one of my favorite things we ever do in our program because it opens things up to all kinds of interesting stories and moments that it will be hard to figure out how to get on the air any other way. This is our portrait of what it has been like here in our country these past seven days from WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. We have some great stories from this week. Stay with us. Okay, so later in the show, you'll hear we're going to tackle some of the big news stories of the week, but we also have uh, these small, super quick stories. Like this one. Let's just start the show here. Folks up north near the Canadian border this week, we're cutting down trees and putting up wood for the winter months.
4: Oh, hell, there goes your finger.
0: That's Tom Rukavina, and he is joking with his wife, Jean Cole, at the wood splitter. They held a meeting this week at City Hall in Berwick, Pennsylvania. That is a town that has seen so much methamphetamine recently that people call it Methylvania.
2: Um, First of all, thank you, everyone, for coming tonight.
0: Detective Greg Martin told the crowd what they came to find out at this meeting, which is how can you tell if someone near you, a neighbor, a relative, somebody you see, is cooking meth? And, of course, they have a PowerPoint for this. The telltale ingredients are a Coleman camp fuel, lithium batteries, coffee filters, tinfoil spoons, the main ingredient, of course, Sudafed, and one more.
5: What you folks can look forward is you may not see all those chemicals because you're not in everybody's house. However, you may be in a retail store where there's a 13-year-old kid in there buying a large quantity of ice packs. Why would a kid need to buy
0: ice packs? Elsewhere, Saturday, this past weekend, a kid who I will just call Jorge made a very literal jump from childhood to adulthood. He was in juvenile detention in central California, and on Saturday he turned 18 years old. And so the night before, his last night as a 17-year-old, he was told that he couldn't sleep in his usual cell because after midnight he would officially be 18, he'd be a legal adult, which means that he could not be with minors anymore. So the state moved him to a room in an isolated wing away from the other teenagers. And then the next morning, he was shackled and handcuffed and gotten to the back of a transport van to be taken to an adult facility. It'll be the county jail for about a week, and then San Quentin. Before the van pulled out, a staff nurse saw it, flagged it down, opened the door.
6: Boo-boo.
7: <laughs>
1: boo-boo.
6: Oh, honey, take care of yourself. Yeah, well. Try
5: not to get caught up. All right, I'll Be try. safe, oh.
1: Be expecting a later. Okay. All right so then. We're
5: thinking about you. All right, me too. All right. Did uh, you get something good to eat this morning? No. 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 Well.
8: Yeah. All right. right Kisses. We love you. All right.
5: Bye. Bye, Bye guys.
0: Bye. He still has nearly six years left of a seven-year sentence for attempted murder and gang participation. There's one indicator of where things are in our country right now. Housing prices are rising. More homes are being listed for sale, which is a sign of health, of course. That is from a report issued this week from Realtor.com. Cities like Houston and Sacramento have housing markets that are described as red hot. The Quad Cities are improving. And in the Twin Cities, housing prices are up over 15% of where they were a year ago. There's enough demand that on Monday, real estate agent Sophia Tufam went from door to door in a suburb of St. Paul, asking people if they would consider selling their homes.
9: I like to have a medium knock, as if it were. Every no, and then you know, as if I was knocking at a friend's house. I don't want to make it sound like I'm the cops at the door or anything like that.
0: <laughs> when a man answers the door, Sophia explains that she has a buyer who wants to purchase in the neighborhood, and she is looking for somebody who might want to sell. Like must be one Monday. This guy was very responsive.
2: Okay. We've considered moving to a house since we got another baby on the way right now. Oh boy! So we have four now. But we got number five coming. Stop. Uh... And so it's something we would think about, I guess, if we could, you know, actually agree to a reasonable price. Sure. But uh, this is actually a, a very nice unit if you want to come in and take a look. I sure would. We've got four bedrooms in here. Wow. And five bathrooms. Right. Um, it's got nice finishes. So we have this bathroom here. Yes. At
0: this point, the impromptu tour runs into the guy's pregnant wife, who's napping.
2: Oh, well, I'm just... Letting someone take a look inside. We're not selling. We just moved here. Okay. Yeah, he was mentioning, you know, maybe there was a thought about moving
6: into a single-family home, something larger.
9: Not
8: that I know (laughs) I just moved in.
0: Phone numbers are exchanged. Polite, maybe we'll be in touches. And on to the next house. Commerce marches on. So turning to our first big story, the well, fallout continued all this week from the revelations about the National Security Agency collecting data of the phone numbers that we dial and how long we talk and the location of our cell phones and how the NSA is also collecting and storing emails, file transfers, photos, videos, chats. You have probably heard all of that. Government officials, of course, are saying that there's nothing to be alarmed about. Nobody is listening to our phone calls. Emails they're reading are those of non-citizens outside the U.S., And I think that lots of us, including me, have the feeling of, okay, I'm boring. I don't care if the government knows what phone calls I make or reads my stupid emails. But of course, people like me and maybe you have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to being monitored by the government. We have no idea of what that really means. So I thought it might be helpful to talk to some people who do. And there is a group of Americans who know with reasonable certainty that they are being spied on by their own government and that is the Lawyers for Guantanamo Detainees. For years now, it's been known that if you are talking to suspected terrorists, your communications are subject to surveillance. Talking to suspected terrorists is basically these lawyers' job description. And one of these attorneys, Candace Gorman, said that her phone started acting weird when she started taking Guantanamo cases in 2006. When she would miss a call, two numbers would appear on her phone instead of one.
6: And I could actually call back the other call that was missed and it would be picked up by um, what they call, what was called a special operator. And I brought my phone to uh, um, to a service. I'm trying to think of what the guy was called. And the first thing he did when he looked at it was said, "Do, do you have any reason to believe that your phone is being tapped?"
0: And so, what has it done to your communications? Like, wh- what do you do differently because of that? If anything?
6: Well, I I stopped taking cases back in 2007. Uh, if I was being monitored, which I believed. I was, and I believe I still am, I knew I couldn't uh, give confidentiality to my clients, which uh, is one of the main things attorneys have to promise their clients.
0: Several lawyers told me very believable stories about being monitored while talking about their cases. In February, uh, you may have read, a government official admitted that there are microphones hidden in the rooms at Guantanamo where lawyers have their supposedly confidential conversations with their clients. But, of course, monitoring may go way beyond that. David Nevin represents the man who's called the architect of the 9-11 attacks, Khalil Sheikh Mohammed, and he represents other detainees as well. He says that there's no way to really know the extent that private, non-work conversations are being listened in on. But still.
8: If you're being listened in on, how do you talk to people? How do you talk to the people who are closest to you? You say that silly, loving thing that you might have said...
0: I mean, will you just keep certain private information off just cuz you just feel like oh, I don't want them to know that. That's uh, that's not for them.
8: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Can can you think of a time when you did that? An example? That isn't so personal that you can't say it on the, on the radio. So, so I'm asking you to zero in on, on on something that's too personal for government eavesdroppers, but not so personal, you don't mind saying it, to like two and a half million people.
8: Right, exactly. No, nothing like that comes to mind. You know, I find myself being more uh, reserved on on the phone than I otherwise might be. Ramzi
0: Qasim has been representing Guantanamo detainees since two thousand five. He says that his friends and family have definitely commented on his very reserved phone manner.
8: Uh, you know everything from, I guess, gentle chiding to, uh, to you know, more uh, sort of more pointed annoyance. Uh, you know, my my you know, my mother will uh, will often you know remark in passing that you know I, I that I, I just don't share much. Well,
6: you know, I have children that are adult children now.
0: Again, Candace Gorman.
6: Um, that I worry about some of the things that they're telling me in confidence, things that are going on in their lives that I, you know, um, don't want the government to know about. And, and I remind them, you know, the most bothersome to me is with uh, the child is far away. So most of our conversations are by text or by phone. And uh, there's there's issues that I just think the government has no right to know.
0: Um, and, is it, and is it just like, you know, the personal stuff, which you don't think it would get anybody in, in trouble or anything, but it's just personal. And you just feel like they, they shouldn't hear that.
6: Yeah, that's that's really what it's about. It's, and it's too personal. You know, it's stuff that, you know, you sometimes don't even want to tell good friends of yours. Uh, yet the government probably is listening to this some um, measly little spy.
0: Is this conversation being recorded, do you think? I believe so. And so do you feel self-conscious about this conversation, knowing that it's being recorded? No, you're just used to it.
6: I'm used to it now, because it's been going on since 2006.
8: I try to live uh, as though I'm not being monitored.
0: This is David Reams, who has represented two dozen detainees over the years. He told me that when it comes to his cases, he limits what he says on the telephone and Internet to things that it wouldn't bother him to have known. But he says that when it comes to monitoring his personal life, it's just like when the government wants to look at his body with an airport scanner. He feels like, Enjoy yourselves.
8: In general, I'd say that I have to live my life without thinking all the time about the possibility that I'm being monitored. I simply won't let that concern govern my life. I can't. I don't see how you can live a normal life if you're always looking over your shoulder.
0: I asked all four of these attorneys, the thing that I have not been able to figure out all week Namely, should we be upset about these new revelations? After all, we are not being monitored the way that they are, not even close. And we're being told safeguards are in place so that no emails are being read, no phones are being tapped of people who are not legitimately part of a real investigation. And remember, there is no proof that anybody has been spied on who should not be. So any abuses still seem very theoretical. Like, yes, this could happen in the future, maybe, but nobody has found anything yet. I put all this to Candace Gorman. Nothing bad has happened yet, right?
6: Well, that's if you believe your government. And, uh, you know, if you believe your government, then back in, in March of 2013, when uh, Director Clapper was asked, is the NSA collecting any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of people? And he said, no.
0: That was testimony that James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, gave in the Senate this March.
6: So now, it's, of course, it's leaked that, yes, they're collecting information on every single person. So so you, you have to start from the premise that I do, and that's that the government's not believable, and they're not going to fess up to anything unless they get caught red-handed.
0: Ramsey Qasim said that it drives me kind of crazy that people, and by people I mean non-lawyers, that he talks to her around New York City, where he lives, seems so undisturbed by the recent revelations. He says that we have no idea still what the real guidelines are for whose emails are being read. And when it comes to the phone records that we now know that NSA is getting, which list all of our calls and their duration, he says it's like people don't really get what that means.
8: You know, I think any one of us, if, if, um, if an FBI agent showed up at our doorstep and basically asked us, you know, who did you call yesterday? Give me those numbers. Don't tell me what you said, but give me the numbers that you called, who started the call, how long the call lasted, how many text messages you sent. I don't care about the content of those calls or those those text messages, but I just want to know, uh, you know, who you called yesterday and what their numbers are and how long those calls lasted. I think most of us would be deeply offended by that, and we'd be very reluctant to turn over that sort of information.
0: Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I heard that and I thought, oh, that's right. That's really creepy. I don't like that. And then I played that quote for some other people around the office and they were like, meh. What do I have to hide? in Oklahoma. This week, crews are still cleaning up in the wake of recent tornadoes around Oklahoma City. In fact, they've barely begun the cleanup. Just under 4,000 houses and buildings were damaged. The first step is actually demolishing the ones that need to come down. It's going to be months before the debris is cleared, and probably another two years before this area is back to where it was before. Annie Correal visited the place that was hit the hardest, the town of Moore.
10: There are literally hundreds of millions to be made off the cleanup in Oklahoma. It's a little like a gold rush. People have come from all over the country, trying to get a piece of it. The competition among demolition crews in particular is cutthroat, really cutthroat. On Saturday, driving around the streets of Moore with a demolition guy named Saul Saltzman, he spots a banner for a competing demolition company on the side of the road. Tip-top demolition, huh?
3: I'm going to tear that sign down later. I'll have to remember where that is.
10: Today, Saul's working on getting a job from this big firm, I can't use their name, but let's call them Restoration Company A. Restoration Company A already has the contract to rip off the roof of a huge damaged warehouse. Saul wants them to hire his crew to do the work. So he's laying out his bid to one of the guys in the company.
3: So I'll cover the uh, crane in my bid too. Crane Crane torching, I'll scrap uh, it all. Well, I'd like to recycle all all the metal I
10: can. Saul's pretty sure he's going to get the gig, because Restoration Company A owes him one. They were in town doing cleanup after the first tornado came through in late May. But then they left, thinking the storms were over. Then another tornado touched down, the largest tornado in history, 2.6 miles wide.
3: And then they called me and said, oh my God, get, get the semi-truck over there and, and make it look like you know what you're doing until we get back to town.
10: Saul says he quickly got Restoration Company A's semi and rushed over to set up shop. The goal? Scare off the competition by making it look like Restoration Company A was already doing the job. While he was there, Saul says two other Restoration companies showed up looking to score the contract.
3: I brought my crew we just pretended we knew what we were doing. They had their shirts in their trailer and we put them on and it was good.
10: Your crew put on the outfits of the restoration company and pretended that you guys were on the job already?
3: Yeah, I pulled up with their semi-truck, and we started setting out the fans to do the drying, and we were doing security and, you know, making sure the other restoration companies didn't steal it. So they owe me. I saved it for them.
10: Saul's been doing cleanup work for more than a decade. Hurricanes, earthquakes, forest fires, ice storms, He was in Joplin and spent three years in New Orleans after Katrina. His crew calls him the Wolf, like Harvey Keitel's character in Pulp Fiction, because he's the guy who comes in to clean things up. But he's not what you'd expect. Saul's in his 30s, but he's boyish, kinda short with shaggy hair like a skater. He's covered in scars, and he walks with a limp, because he used to be a stuntman in Hollywood. He crashed motorcycles, jumped from buildings, he doubled for Al Bundy's son, Bud, on Married with Children, too. He had to quit stunt work after one too many injuries. These days, Saul mainly focuses on large commercial jobs. But if he needs the work, he'll tear down houses, too. The key to getting these residential demo gigs is to be as non-threatening as possible. To appear local. So the first thing he does after a storm is get a new phone.
3: Yeah, I buy a, I get a phone at Walmart. <laughs> uh, so you have a local phone number, because people... Will, more receptive to that.
10: Did you do that on your way here to...
3: Yeah, I did it before we left. Already had the 405.
10: 405 is the local area code.
3: Hey, this is uh, this is Sal. I met you at Chili's. Yes. Yeah, uh, b- about
10: uh, doing some sales with the demolition stuff. Yes, yes. yes. On a day I spent with Saul, who sometimes calls himself Sal... He was trying to recruit a local Chili's waitress to go door to door pitching his services to homeowners. Okay, I'll call you back. Okay, see ya. All right. Bye.
3: She knows a ton of people. Yeah, and go to door cuz then she would like, you know, can talk like, "Oh, my because her house got messed up and, you know,
10: it's better." Saul says the most important factor in getting work? Get there first. He runs a pretty big operation. Fifteen trucks, semis and dump trucks, a bunch of excavators, bobcats, dumpsters, and a couple of buses which he uses to haul workers. For a big storm, he says his convoy can be as long as two football fields. And when he's chasing a storm, racing his convoy across the interstate to, say, Louisiana or North Dakota, he doesn't want to bother with those way stations along the highway where all the trucks are required to check in. That would take hours. So how does he get away with not stopping? Saul plasters his truck with FEMA signs.
3: I got it from someone who had one for real. And I've made tons of copies. I think you saw one today in my truck. And I put that all over the windows.
10: What do
3: they look like? Uh, It says emergency vehicle and has like the FEMA thing. It says do not delay. So then I came up with, um, you know, you can buy old police cars really cheap. So I bought a police car and an ambulance, and, and then I turned the ambulance side, gutted it out, you know, and made it just a box truck to hold tools and everything, and then I put those in the convoy with everything else. No one ever bothers us.
10: I asked Saul if this was legal, and he said, pretty much. I said, pretty much? He said the normal rules are usually lifted in a disaster. On a big storm, Saul can make up to a million dollars net. That's on hurricanes and floods where the big money's at because they're so huge and affect so many people that the government takes over and contracts go through the roof. Tornadoes, on the other hand, don't cause as much widespread damage. And since people are insured, you've got to get work one building at a time. Saul says he'll be lucky just to break even on this storm. He has a huge overhead. It cost him $25,000 just to get here. He has a staff of around 30, plus the laborers he's got working across the city. Lots of people depend on Saul, and they all need to be paid. Saul's always competing against other seasoned crews like his. But this time around, there's a new group to compete with. Good Samaritans, church groups, and relief organizations. There's so many volunteers and more, they're just wandering around looking for things to do. At one point, I was talking to some volunteers, and they tried to help some people. Who turned out to be other volunteers.
4: Hi guys. You thirsty? Hungry? Oh, we're we're Saul you says what?
10: there are more church groups than ever. No, Here in Oklahoma, yeah. he's seen something he's never seen before. Samaritans with excavators.
3: See? Samaritans Purse Disaster Relief. On a three twelve cap, brand new. From North Carolina.
10: They're actually doing demolition here.
3: I've never seen this before, that's that where they have equipment. Usually it's
10: just handwork.
3: So now they're really helping the insurance companies. Because all these people have insurance.
10: So now you're getting competition, not just from other demolition companies. It's
3: hard to compete with free.
10: Saul thinks you will spend a month or two in Oklahoma, unless there's another storm somewhere else.
0: Annie Correal in Moore, Oklahoma. Coming up, how to be one of the very best in the country at what you do and still not make more money from your boss than you did a decade ago. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's American Life and Myra Glass. Each week going to show, of course, we choose a theme. Today's theme is this week. is our portrait of what happened these last seven days all across our country. Um, let's see if I can actually...
5: So I've got a laptop briefcase with the zipper at one end. And so I'm going to try to just squeeze, squeeze my hand closed. And it's actually holding pretty well. Look at that. I can actually close the zipper.
0: Thursday, yeah, I, in Thousand Oaks, a suburb of L.A., Peter Lee got a new arm. Peter had his arm amputated above the elbow because of cancer almost exactly three years ago. And on Thursday, he was fitted with an I-Limb Ultra, a top-of-the-line prosthetic. It uses sensors on his bicep and tricep to tell the new artificial hand how to move. It's really actually very cool. One of our staffers, uh, Fia Benin, has a brother, Rio Benin, who also has a prosthetic arm, the same brand an ILIM, but a much older model. And Rio kind of obsessively follows what's going on with the latest models and was curious to check out the one that Peter was getting. And so we decided to get them together over Skype right in the middle of Peter's final fitting for the device, so they could do a video chat, and, so and kind of the two of them really geeked out it, but, but. over the technology.
5: Not, you know, I'm having no trouble at all opening and closing this thing. Yeah, can you pick things up? Can you...? Yeah. I have a little water bottle in my hand, and I'm going to try to close my robot hand around it without crushing it too much. There you go. So let me see if I can get the, the wrist going.
8: That double contraction,
5: contracting both yep. the biceps. And so I switched from the hand to the wrist. And with the wrist, um, it spins around kind of exorcist style, where it just like spins <laughs> on my hand and I can just keep on letting it spin around and around.
8: Uh, you're two or three generations ahead of me, so I don't have a movable wrist like you do, or at least hmm. not a powered wrist. Okay. Uh, no, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, how well doing with it. That's, I think you can even pick an egg up with
5: it. Yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> and you can try that,
8: but I, I, I've seen people do I think you can do it, yeah? yeah. And you can deal with what's one of the more awkward situations, which is a cocktail party. You're holding your drink in your hand. You meet someone, they want to shake your hand, yeah. and you have to quickly scurry around the room looking for a table to put your drink down on. So yeah. You can shake. <laughs> have you caught a glimpse of yourself in a, in a mirror yet?
5: I haven't, actually. That... All right, so it's pretty wild because um, the prosthetic, it's mostly black with a carbon fiber pattern on the forearm and then this kind of translucent white glove over a black robotic hand. And it it really looks cyborg. You know, I'm looking down at my, my two hands right now, it, it feels right, you know. Obviously, I I understand that this is actually not my hand, but there must be a part of my brain that says, ah, yes, that's right. (laughs) That's what it's supposed to look like. My girlfriend wanted to be here today for this, and so tonight, I'm sure we're going to run around the house doing all manner of silly, stupid things and making videos.
3: I think you will be able to hug her.
5: Yeah, it'll probably be one of the first things that, that she and I try.
0: Peter Lee. Talking to Rio Benin. Dayline Tuesday, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Hearings resumed on Tuesday in preparation for the trial of Abd al Rahim on Nashiri. Nashiri is accused of organizing the attack on the warship the USS Cole back in 2000. Seventeen sailors were killed in that attack. Nishiri is being tried by one of those Guantanamo military commissions. And just to review the situation at Guantanamo, there are still 166 detainees there. At this point, more than half of them, 86, have been cleared for transfer, meaning that the government has concluded that they are not dangerous, but is still holding them. John Neffel has been covering Guantanamo for RollingStone.com. He's been there twice before. He went down again on Monday. And it's the first time that John or any reporter's have been back to Guantanamo since President Obama gave that speech last month, saying he was going to renew efforts to close the prison. One of the producers of our show, Sarah Koenig, called John to talk about what it was like to be down there this week.
4: There are a couple of ways you can watch court proceedings if you're a reporter at Guantanamo. You can be in the courtroom, and I use in in air quotes here. You sit in a gallery behind three panes of soundproof glass. Or you can watch from inside a media trailer equipped with a closed circuit feed. Either way, what you're hearing is a 40-second delay of the action in the courtroom. John, who spoke to me from a phone in the media trailer while the Nishiri hearings were underway, says the setup gives you a great appreciation for how very long 40 seconds is.
11: sort of feels like a a bad movie dub.
4: Can you just describe what you're looking at, like what it looks like? Is he in the courtroom?
11: Uh, Yeah, he, he is in the courtroom. He is wearing white. Prison issue garb. He has short hair. He's listening to the the proceedings on headphones, so it's being translated for him.
4: Is the sound just turned down or off, or?
11: Yeah, I just have the sound down low right now.
4: Do you mind just turning it up so we can hear it? Is that is that allowed?
11: No, I think that if I did that, I would be on a plane out of here pretty quickly. Unfortunately.
4: Oh, why? I mean, if it's in the Um, reporter's trailer, couldn't why couldn't then it's public? No.
11: uh, The there are signs everywhere that say no recording, and um, that's uh, part of the guidelines.
4: Oh, I see. Okay, right. Okay. Yeah. That's so.
11: (laughs) Yeah, and and then the other uh, particularly interesting thing about the courtroom is that um, there's a red light next to the judge that either the judge or his assistant, who's called a court security officer, can hit if anyone begins talking about classified information. And so that's, that's the point of this 40-second delay, is the stated aim is to um, protect against accidental disclosures of classified information.
4: Does it feel any different from the last time you were there since Obama's speech?
11: You know, I was sort of thinking that it might, but it really doesn't. its I would say that it doesn't feel like anything here has changed, Now There was testimony in court that there's funding for a fiber optic cable that's going to be laid from here, from the mainland to here, to improve Internet capabilities. And that's just a sort of small symbol of the inertia to keep Guantanamo open. And when you're here, it doesn't feel like anyone's moving out at all. There's, there's no signs of, of not even its immediate closure, but even that its closure is imminent at some point in the future.
4: John told me the Nishiri hearings this week were kind of weedy and technical. Tuesday, they argued at length about whether defense lawyers were allowed to bring spiral notebooks into the prison, since the wires binding them can be pulled out and used as weapons. They also argued about whether the government could use hearsay evidence against Nishiri, something that's rarely allowed in a civilian court. And on Friday, they held a closed session, meaning only lawyers and the judge, no press, not even Nishiri himself was allowed to be there, to discuss a motion that is so top secret, it doesn't even have a name it's referred to as Motion 92, because it's the 92nd court filing in the case. John says he's got this continual feeling when he's down there that he's only ever seeing the tip of the iceberg. That with all this monitoring and layers of secrecy, it's impossible to know the whole story of these cases.
11: There's so much hidden here. You, you are covering a trial. It just happens to be a trial that contains a lot of evidence that no one can tell you.
4: I'm wondering because there's been so much criticism about the the form and the structure of these trials um and how you know they they kind of have all the you know architecture of of real legal proceedings but then things happen where like you know maybe somebody at the CIA pulls a plug and suddenly there's no feed or you know the defense finds a hidden microphone in the interview cell and so i wonder like does it feel all sort of ridiculous like it's just a show in a kangaroo courty kind of way or does it feel like no they're really trying to sort this out and make it legitimate and make it feel as transparent as they can and make it feel legal. I'm, I'm
11: kind of of two minds on this because on the one hand, there are points where it really feels like it's being made up as as it goes. And on, on the other hand, it it does feel like the judge is independent, the, the defense is adversarial. And so it, it doesn't, it's not exactly as though you're being led down this predetermined path. It, it does feel like there can be some amount of deviance, but again, the, the amount of deviance is, I think, within a, a somewhat narrow, narrow structure, especially because at the end of the day, the government has always contended that there are two authorities for holding people at Guantanamo Bay, and in a lot of ways, they don't have that much to do with each other. So the one authority is for holding people as war criminals for the violation of war. So that's what we're seeing in these trials, is whether or not people are guilty of war crimes. But then the other authority is to hold people as prisoners of war, and at the beginning of this week, I asked the the lead prosecutor, uh, General Mark Martins, if it was possible that Nishiri could be found not guilty and continued to be held. And he admitted that, yeah, it is possible. That hasn't happened, but it's possible. And because it's possible, there, there is a sense that, not that what we're seeing is unimportant, but that the, the government has a monopoly on all the power, and the, the outcome of the trial doesn't necessarily mean what it would mean in a civilian court.
4: Because he's officially there only to cover the Nishiri hearings, John isn't allowed to tour the part of the island where the prisoners are held, and he can't see any sign of them. Meanwhile, Guantanamo officials say 104 detainees are on hunger strike right now, and 43 of them are being force-fed Ensure or some other nutrition drink, usually twice a day, to keep them alive, though others are taking the Ensure voluntarily under threat of force-feeding. This hunger strike started in February, and John says lawyers for the detainees tell him their clients aren't despondent or suicidal, they're protesting, protesting their conditions and the fact that so little is being done to get them out of there do you How much do you know about what the force feeding actually entails physically
11: my My understanding is that um, that hunger strikers uh, if they don't go voluntarily that there's a team that goes in and uh, extracts them and straps them to a chair and then they're moved into the room where they're uh, force-fed, and then the, the tube is, is um, shoved up their nose and down their throat. Lawyers, really across the board, describe it as an excruciating process.
4: You were saying um, that you had spoken to a lawyer of somebody who was being force-fed. Can you talk about that? Yeah.
11: Um, so one of the detainees, a man named Ahmed Bilbaka, who is Algerian, described A nurse who he says is maybe 40 years old and he says that uh, she fed him for the first day and her hands were shaking as she did it so he says I asked her is this your first time force-feeding someone and the nurse said yes it is and um, then he the detainee told his attorney quote some guards tell me I could never take what you are going through
4: John says when you're a reporter at Guantanamo, your day is so orderly, so tightly regimented, but it's easy to fall into the comfort of that, to get lost in the day-to-day details. The number of hunger strikers, how many are being force-fed today, what's happening with this or that court motion. And over time, you start to think it's all kind of normal. And he has to remind himself, it's not normal. Every day, he says, quote, I try to remember what an aberration all this is.
0: Claire Koenig with John Neffel, he's with Rollingstone.com, and he co-hosts the internet radio show, Radio Dispatch. Dayline Wednesday, lunchtime at a hotel near the Pentagon.
1: so, if I may ask Mr. Justin, uh, Jason Pittman, excuse me, I was looking at the wrong line. Jason Pittman is our elementary and middle school teacher of the year. Jason, and glad to have you here.
0: As the word was for aerospace educator of the year for the D.W. Steele chapter of the Air Force Association, it was given to a science teacher from Alexandria, Virginia, right near D.C. This teacher teaches preschool through sixth grade. His name is Jason Pittman. Uh, Congratulations on your award!
1: Thank you very much. It was neat. It was it was a really big honor, and I was I was really honored to get to meet the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force, and uh, and he said some really touching things to me. So it was it was really meaningful.
0: And so, what did he say?
1: Um, you know, he he took me aside, and he says, um, he says, "Thanks for serving your country in this way, and and thanks for making the choice to teach."
0: So he says this to you, and you know that this is also
1: your last week of teaching, right? That's correct. And
0: so what did you say to him?
1: Well, you know, that gave me a big lump in my throat. Um you know, I shook his hand and said and said thank you very much. I, I uh I couldn't bring myself to, to say that this was gonna be my, my last week of teaching.
0: In fact, Friday was his last class after 10 years, winning national awards, one from the National Science Teacher Association, one for leadership and innovation in earth science education. There was a commendation from the Virginia State Senate. He has his students building robots. He was selected to be the teacher on an expedition with Dr. Robert Ballard, the guy who found the Titanic. Michelle Obama has visited the 13,000 square foot garden where he teaches the science of gardening and health.
1: That's right. Yeah, she, she came to my class and, and we did lessons together. And, and actually, we've gone and, and visited the White House quite a few times.
0: Okay, right. So if it's going so great, why quit teaching? The answer? Money. The funding that pays for his position in the Fairfax County Schools has been rocky for years.
1: Uh, so I work in this program that provides um, science education for lower-income schools. But that program was cut completely from the county's budget 5 years ago.
0: Fortunately, the community around the school really wanted him to stay in his job, so they started a nonprofit to raise money to keep him in that job.
1: But what it means is we're trying to get local businesses interested and and get folks to to fund us to to keep this thing in place every year. So really every year I don't even know if I have a job. Uh, you know, it's 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 always a lot of legwork, you know, I've got to, I've got to be down at the school board meetings and and um Making speeches and
0: wait, wait so, so I understand right, so you basically have to raise the money for your own position
1: that's correct, yeah, I mean, it feels like a roller coaster, you know like every year we're we're fundraising to kind of to try and keep this um position in place and and uh it's too many jobs. you feel like you're doing a good job and you feel like you have to grovel oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Ugh. laughs>
0: Is that too strong? Is that word too strong? No,
1: that's exactly <laughs> what it feels like. I I mean, you know, like, and, and we're just, we're not, we are not allowed to say that. We're not allowed to say that we feel like that, you know? Because like, you're supposed to be
0: saints or something.
1: We're just supposed to be all sacrificing, you know, uh, yeah, you know, ever, ever serving, ever humble. You know, making this move to leave, I feel... Um, I feel incredibly selfish. You know, teachers aren't supposed to be selfish. You know, we're supposed to to do this job for, for more than money.
0: Okay, so maybe this is relevant information about Jason's attitude. Before he did this job, he founded his own tech company until he realized that he was always trying to finish his business meetings early so that he could get back to his volunteer teaching job And then he switched careers, went to grad school and switched careers. He started 10 years ago as a teacher at $57,000 a year. After a few raises and then some school budget cuts, he's still basically making the same thing now. He's making about $58,000 a year with no real change coming anytime soon. He's 38 years old, still paying off his student loans. Back in 2008, he bought a townhouse expecting that his salary was going to rise. It didn't. And so he sold it off in 2011. So, 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 my understanding is like you don't really wanna quit, you're
1: kind of dreading it, is that right? yeah, yeah, I mean i <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it gets me a little choked up, you know, like I wanna be here, and I wanna do this <clears throat> yeah i I wanna be here, I wanna do this job, um at a point where it just um, you know, I wanna be able to to pay a mortgage and and have a car payment. So, so it's your last week of teaching. Like, what's that like? Um, it's heartbreaking, actually. It's, it's really, really hard. Like, executing some really great lessons and, and having kids get really, really excited. You know, there was, a, there was a little kid who left my classroom and said, Mr. Pittman, this is the greatest day of my life. I love science, and granted, he's only four years old, so I don't have that many days to compete with. <laughs> but uh, that's when that was the worst day, you know, to to uh, to know that I have all these kids that that love science, and I know that they love my class, and and that they're really getting something out of it, and um, I'm I'm gonna leave, and I'm really gonna miss that. Jason Pittman.
0: knowing that I was gonna. Put this interview on the radio, he told me that he is finally going to tell his principal the news that he's quitting and looking for a new job
1: i mean i I feel like i've got the I've got the skill set, and every year I get a couple of of decent offers um you know, so I ought to be able to pick something up pretty quick and <laughs> it's horrible but if I have to fall back on something there's always teaching <laughs> so if hey, so you have to fall
0: back um, on something, there's always your dream job. Right? <laughs> which you're incredibly successful, that'll be your fallback.
1: I don't know. (laughs) Just having a really tough week.
0: Deadline Florida, Wednesday night. It's 724. A man named William Van Poik was executed by lethal injection. Van Puyk was convicted of killing a prison guard in 1987. Over the years since his trial, two people came forward saying that his accomplice in the crime was the one who pulled the trigger. Two jurors have said that this would have changed their vote for the death penalty. The Florida Supreme Court split twice, four to three, on his case. Van Puyk became a writer in prison. He wrote three books, two crime novels, and a memoir. He also kept a blog. Last month, he wrote, When your death warrant gets signed, so many things suddenly become trivial. I've already thrown or given away 95% of my personal property, the stuff that for years seems so important. All those great books I'll never get to read. Reams and reams of legal work I've been dragging around and studying for two decades and which has suddenly lost its relevance. Does it really matter to me now what's happening in the Middle East? Or on Wall Street? Or how my Miami Dolphins are looking for the upcoming new season? What's the point? Ditto the TV. The other day I caught myself reaching for my daily vitamin. Really, I wondered. Now every decision about how to spend the next hour reminds me of Elaine in that Seinfeld episode where she had to constantly evaluate whether her boyfriends were really sponge-worthy. In Florida, there are now 405 people in death row, and the number that they're actually putting to death is rising. There was a period of one or two executions a year, or no executions at all. But in the last three months, Florida Governor Rick Scott has signed six new death warrants. Van Poik's execution is the third of those to be carried out. And Emily Bazelon, legal affairs editor at Slate, says they want to go even faster.
9: The Florida legislature recently became the first in the country to pass a bill requiring the pace of executions to speed up. It's called the Timely Justice Act. It sets a deadline of 30 days for the governor to sign a death warrant. That's after an inmate's appeals become final, meaning after at least one round of state and federal appeals and after a review by the governor for clemency. Once the governor signs the death warrant, the Timely Justice Act says the execution has to occur within 180 days. In Florida, this is a troubling plan. Here is why. Florida has the highest rate of error in the country in death penalty cases. Since the mid-1970s, it's 77 people executed for 24 exonerated. So in other words, for every three inmates executed, one has been set free. Okay, so a couple of questions might have just popped into your head. Why would Florida want to speed up executions? And why is the state convicting so many innocent people in the first place? I'm going to start with the second question. Florida is the only state in the country where it just takes a simple majority of the jury, a vote of 7 to 5, to send someone to death. Every other state requires a unanimous jury vote, except for Alabama, where they require 10 votes. And another huge problem in Florida is the low quality of defense counsel, especially at trial. There's a Supreme Court justice in Florida named Raul Contero who has said that, quote, some of the worst lawyering he has ever seen has been in death penalty cases, where some counsel have, quote, little or no experience. In 2006, the American Bar Association reviewed Florida's whole death penalty system, and they questioned its fairness and accuracy and came up with 11 recommendations for a form. The Florida Supreme Court and the Florida Bar have also urged comprehensive review, but none of that has happened. So now, let's go back to your first question. Why would Florida look at this set of disturbing exoneration numbers and a disgraceful report from the Bar Association and say, hey, I know, let's make this go faster? Especially at a moment when nationally the number of executions is falling. California and North Carolina haven't executed anyone in years. In Illinois and Connecticut and in Maryland, they've repealed the death penalty. And even in Texas, which is the nation's leader in executions, they've been slowing it down. I called Florida Representative Matt Gates, who's the House sponsor of the Timely Justice Act, to ask him about the bill, but he didn't return my calls. The same thing happened with the state Senate sponsor of the Timely Justice Act, Joe Negron, which I mention only because I think it's lame. But another state senator who backed the bill, Rob Bradley, agreed to go on tape, which I appreciated. He's a lawyer, and he says having people sit on death row for 10 or 20 or 30 years, it's just too long.
2: And so that erodes the public's confidence, and it leaves the impression, rightly or wrongly, that the system is broken and doesn't work and why are we doing this?
9: I'd argue that having the highest rate of exonerations in the country might also erode public confidence, which is kind of what I did argue. What I'm having trouble with is the fact that Florida has really had such a high error rate. And so I wonder if you're at all nervous that it's possible this new law will make it more likely that the state could execute an innocent person.
2: This law is not aimed at making it easier to execute someone
9: who is innocent. Um, Right. But in some cases, my understanding is that the idea of having a 30 day um, period and then a 180 day period is that that will cut off some of the later appeals. I just don't see how that could not be the case.
2: What it does is it puts the condemned and his or her lawyers on notice that they need to, if they have claims of innocence, need to gather them and present them to a competent court of law uh, and do so in a timely manner.
9: There are a couple of problems with this argument. One is that evidence of innocence can surface at any time. Courts move slowly on these cases for a reason. Death is different, as the United States Supreme Court has said many times. Take the case of Juan Melendez. He was on Florida's death row for 16 years before a defense investigator discovered a tape in the case files. It was a tape of another man confessing to the murder, and no one had presented it to the jury. Before the tape came out, the Florida Supreme Court rejected his appeals three times. If the Timely Justice Act had been in effect at the time, Juan Melendez might easily have been executed. I found four more people like that when I looked up the records of all of Florida's 24 exonerees. These were men who spent between 13 and 21 years on death row. It took time and a lot of work to undo the mistakes that initially doomed them. And those mistakes were often made by their own lawyers. For example, the trial lawyer for William Van Poik, the man who was executed on Wednesday. That lawyer did no investigation beforehand to give the jury a reason to spare his client's life. Or Van Poik's lawyer on his first appeal, a cocaine addict who'd previously been disbarred, and never spoke to Van Poik or answered any of his letters. In theory, the Timely Justice Act would fix this problem by funding defense lawyers. But then you read the bill, and you find only about $400,000 to reopen one office for defense lawyers in the northern part of the state. And that office won't handle trials or even the first appeal. The lawyers will only get involved in the last stage. Governor Rick Scott has until next week to decide if he'll sign the Timely Justice Act into law. If he does, defense lawyers say it will require him to sign 13 new death warrants in the 30 days that follow.
0: Emily Bazelon, a quick update, Friday afternoon, after Emily recorded that story that you just heard, Governor Rick Scott announced that he signed the Timely Justice Act into law. He said, quote, The bill does not increase the risk of execution of persons who did not commit murder. Deadline, Philadelphia. So what happened this week?
7: This week, we were uh, preparing for the shower of my, uh, for my daughter. She's 22. She was having her first baby. Um, and it was just fun to be able to, d- to share this with my daughter because uh, a year ago, I was preparing a funeral, not, not knowing when she would die, but if she did die, how I would do this. And here I'm now preparing for the both birth of my first grandson.
0: Last year, Mary Ellen Bowman's daughter, Rachel, was addicted to heroin. It's a pretty horrible year. How were you preparing for a funeral? Like, what what was going on?
7: I planned that I was going to have her cremated.
0: You mean you started calling around to places?
7: Yeah, to see what what what's the procedure, and when I get the ashes, where would I put them? And I found out that my where my brothers buried, there was extra room for her to be put there. Yeah.
0: What kind of state was she in that you were that you were thinking about her dying? Like, what was she like at home? She,
7: she was very very thin. Um, she had no veins in her one arm; they were collapsed. Yeah, and her eyes were sunken. She looked like a. They watch those stupid zombie movies. Yeah. That's what she looked like. I have pictures of it.
0: How is she? How is she treating you? Like what was she like?
7: Horrible. Stealing from me, cursing at me, abusing me. Um, I couldn't trust her. So it was a vicious year of trying to get help but getting nowhere. I finally resorted to praying. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but um, every night at eight o'clock, I would sit at my sofa. I was praying for the world and any anybody addicted to heroin, and then I had a healing prayer for my daughter Rachel. And it sort of went briefly, Heavenly Father, you had you created Rachel, you can recreate her. Please make her free of addiction. I printed this prayer. I gave it to anybody that would take it, not friends, but people in church, old people, because they have nothing else to do but pray. Usually, you know, they're lonely. And then I went and I also gave it to parents of young kids because I was taught that God hears the prayers of children. Um, about nine months ago, my daughter came to me and said that uh, she wanted me to help her rehab. And I witnessed something I had never seen before, um, a person withdrawing from heroin. It's horrible, but she did it. About the third week, she started to have horrible, um, vomiting periods in the morning and at night. Finally, I took her to the ER, and we found out she was pregnant. She was having morning sickness. Wow. I didn't know it.
0: And then, and then, can I just ask you, so, so on Sunday, during the games and the presents <laughs> opening... Um, did you find yourself flashing back to a year ago?
7: No, I completely forgot. <laughs> for that day, that moment, that to see her. the difference, it's completely different. And I cannot believe, for that whole day, never once did I think about it. And now I look at the crib sometimes, it's in the living room now after the shower, and I am scared. And I'll always be scared, but... You know, I'm Catholic, and God says, if you ask me, I will be there. So guess what? I guess I'll be praying even
3: more.
0: Well, program is produced today by our senior producer, Julie Snyder and Sarah Koenig, with Fia Bennon Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhevar, Lisa Pollock, Brian Reed, Robin Semien, Alyssa ship and Nancy Updegg. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon's our production manager. Elise Bergerson's our administrative assistant. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special newsy theme music for today's program by Cassettes Won't Listen. Special thanks today to everybody who gathered tape and reported for this week's show, including our WBEZ colleague Linda Lutton, Minnesota Public Radio's business reporter Annie Bankster, and Jill Wolfson in Santa Cruz, California. Thanks also to Robert Polly, Sarah Ryan, Bonnie Dankert, Jeremy Duda, Grover Norquist, Robert Nayman, Chrissy Clark at Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty desk, Rick Allison, Stephen K. Harper, Alexandra Schmidt, Kevin Ferguson, Elizabeth Fiedler, Emily Berman, Elliot Francis, Tammy Halla, and Aaron Wiener. Research for today's show by Michelle Harris and Julie Beer. Annie Correale's reporting is part of a series that she's doing on disaster migrants with support from the French American Foundation Immigration Journalism Fellowship. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. WBEC management oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he is always telling me, keep my hands away from the radio station's transmission gear.
4: Oh, hell, there goes your finger.
0: I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.